listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Now, would you stand, please, for the reading of Scripture? Today's Scripture reading is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. The first night that Emilia and I spent together as a married couple, I was seething in anger at the other side of the bed with my back toward turned away from her. Not how I expected to spend a first night as a husband. I had been living in our apartment for six months before the wedding, and I had gotten everything set up. I had arranged everything and uh, put every, you know, decorated it the way it needed to be, and imagine my surprise when her first day in our new kitchen, Amelia said, the utensils are in the wrong place. <laughs> and then she had different ideas about how the furniture should be arranged. And, you know, I could forgive that kind of. But then we went up to her bedroom, and I had very thoughtfully put a beautiful piece of artwork over our bed, a black velvet Elvis painting. <laughs> this was the first piece of art I had ever purchased. I spent $15 on it in a Kmart parking lot, and Amelia did not appreciate it at all. In fact, I think her words were essentially you can decide who's going to spend the night with you. <laughs> Either me or Elvis. So in a very mature and thoughtful way, I ripped the painting off the wall, stormed outside, threw it in the dumpster, stomped back into the house, and threw myself in bed, turning my back towards my new bride. Whew. Maybe you haven't been there exactly. In fact, I'd be surprised if you were there exactly. That would be really weird. 
But we all probably know something of what that feels like. Irritation, frustration, unmet desires, anger, conflict. What is it that causes this? Because nobody enjoys it, right? When are you going to do that thing I finally ever do that thing I asked you to do? She won't share with me. He's touching me. Who keeps taking the last pot of coffee from the break room and not refilling it? I told you I'm on a Zoom call. James asks this really penetrating question. What is it that causes those fights and those quarrels? And we're tended to answer in a certain way. Well, they do. It's those other people out there that cause the problems. If they weren't so dumb and difficult and demanding, if they weren't so selfish, everything would be great. Other people are the cause of my conflicts. But James does not let us off the hook so easily. What does he say? When we look at conflict, he wants us to go back and ask, why is this there? What caused it? What's going on? And James says, what is it that causes your fights? It's your passions, your desires. You want something, and you don't get it. Now, James is talking about the way things normally operate. He's not talking about situations of abuse, where there may be one person who is genuinely innocent and another person who is a violent aggressor. He's not ever asking the abused person to figure out what you did to cause this abuse. And I'm not saying that either. James is talking about in the normal course of life, in the vast majority of cases, the cause of conflict has something to do with me. The problem is inside each one of us, James says. And here's the key idea that comes out in this passage. You fight most for what you love most. You fight most for what you love most. James has already told us that temptations come from our sinful desires inside of us. He's told us that ugly words come out of ugly hearts. So it's not really a new idea or a surprising thought that James points inside of us for the source of our conflicts. James, if you notice, he's not interested in who's right or wrong. He's not interested in debating the issues. He doesn't even talk about what the issues are. He's concerned about what the conflict says about us, what the conflict is doing in us and to other people. Because you fight most for what you love most. And and we're going to see a a couple of things here. A, A spiral of conflict that we end up in and then a solution for that conflict. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 4, pull out your sermon journals. Several years ago, a Christian author named Ken Sandy wrote a really helpful and insightful book called The Peacemaker. And he points to this passage to show us this downward progression of frustrated desires that lead to conflict. The spiral of conflict. Did, did you hear that spiral in the reading? You probably picked it up in my experience with Amelia. Here's what happened. It starts kind of innocently enough. I desire something. I desire something. Look in verse 1. What causes your fights and quarrels? Your passions 
are at war within you. You desire and you do not have. Now, we like to sort of pretty up our conflicts and make them about, you know, trampled rights and just causes and uh, high ideals, and eh, maybe that's true. But James is saying underneath all that, the cause of our conflicts is we want something and we don't get it. Passions there in the Greek is hedone, from which we get hedonism. We get into fights because of something we desire for ourselves. And some desires are, you know, just obviously wrong, but most of them are not. The problem is we want something that we're not getting, respect or affirmation or money or success or romance or excitement. But God's Spirit in me also wants to produce love and trust and gratitude and gentleness and other-centeredness. And so what I want is often at war with what God wants. I'm at war with myself, James is saying. I'm at war with what God wants for me or how God wants me to get it. And you fight most for what you love most. What if the other person doesn't agree with you? What if they don't like the way you've decorated the apartment? What if you don't get that thing that you really want. Often we become frustrated and, and we start obsessing about the thing and try to figure out how we can get it. That's the next stage. I desire, then I demand. Look in verse 2. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your passions. You covet, James says. Coveting is saying, I need what that other person has. In other words, you have what I need to make me happy, and you're not giving it to me. My happiness depends on whether I have what that other person has. Depends on whether God gives me what he seems to be holding out on me. You ask and you don't receive. We become so determined about getting that thing that we don't even stop to ask God for it or whether it's even a good thing. Or sometimes we do ask God with bad motives. See, a desire is saying, I would like this. A demand is saying, I need this. I must have this. And when that happens, we've made something other than God our Savior. Because we're telling ourselves, life will be good only when I get that thing. And if I don't get the thing, God isn't good. I wanted Amelia's affirmation of my choices. And when she didn't give it to me, it felt like a rejection. It felt like I was being devalued or attacked. It, when our desires are frustrated, when we get told no about something important to us, our response is not usually gracious acceptance and patient trust. More likely, we feel anger and frustration because a desire has turned into a demand. And the way we can identify demands in our lives is to ask, what is it that preoccupies me? What is it that I'm protecting, that I'm holding on to at all costs, or avoiding at all costs? Demands are the things that have become the source of my hope, my significance, my peace. 
And when people fail to satisfy those desires, when they don't give in to the demands, when they don't live up to our expectations, we criticize, we find fault, we judge them. That's the third step. I desire, I demand, I judge. Look down in verse 11. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In verse 12, but there's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? See, judging is about determining what's right and what's wrong in other people's lives. We judge people for how they spend their money, for how they raise their kids, for their politics, for their vaccination status, for their bumper stickers or yard signs or hashtags. We judge people's motives and intentions. And then to speak against others God says, is to actually speak against God's own law to love our neighbors as ourselves. When we judge people, when we look down on them, when we speak harshly and critically about people, we are making ourselves judges over God's commands because we're saying in effect to God, I don't need to love those people like you told me to. They don't deserve my kindness or patience. I know better than you, God. How I treat others is really a reflection of how I see God. Do I think that I am the lawgiver and judge? Well, after I judge people, then I punish them. Because when people fail to satisfy our demands, they're, they're not just wrong, they're bad. And they should pay for it. Look back in verse 2. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, hopefully, that's not literally the extent that our fights have gotten to. But I think James is echoing what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. When you harbor anger in your heart, when, when you are speaking down and condemning people in your hearts, that's tantamount to murder because we want them to suffer. We want to see them pay. We want to see vengeance. And we do that in a variety of ways. Overtly, we may yell, we may stomp, we may hit. We may be more subtle about it. It may be sarcasm. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. We may shoot people dirty looks. We all know how to give people the side eye. We may withdraw. You know, we can act cold and distant to people. We can just turn our backs and shut them out. We may cut them out of our lives entirely. One of the surest signs of frustrated demands is inflicting pain on people. When I'm hurting someone, it's almost always because some demand has been frustrated. If I yell at my kids for not doing the chores, it's not about the chores. My desire for them to obey was frustrated. I let it grow into a demand, and now it's their fault. It's those kids that made me get angry. Anyone else been there? When we set ourselves against one another, we're not just creating a horizontal problem. We're setting ourselves against God, James says. We're creating a vertical problem. And when we put ourselves against God, we're putting ourselves against the only one in verse 12 who is able to save. 
but he is able to save. And he does save. That's the solution. That's the spiral of conflict. What's the solution look like? The good news is that God also fights most for what he loves most. And what he loves is sinful people like us. What he loves is to save and deliver and heal broken, messed up people. And honestly facing what James says here is one of the most important things we will do over and over and over again in our lives. But I warn you, it's painful. It's hard. So let's look at this solution for conflict. First, I repent. I repent. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hatred towards God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He said it would be painful. I mean, that is like a slap in the face, isn't it? Adulterers, sinful, double-minded. This is the language of the Old Testament prophets, right? And right away, just like when we hear the prophets preaching, we want to deflect. It's not that bad. I'm not, I'm not that messed up. I'm better than those people, at least. The Old Testament often pictures God's relationship to his people like that of a husband to a bride. Think of the pain, the horror of a betrayal by a spouse. And God says, that is us. When we love and pursue what we want more than we love and pursue God, we're meant to be his bride and we turn our backs and cheat on him. Verse 5, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He's made us to know life and wholeness and joy and peace and relationship with him. That's what he wants. That's what he yearns for. But putting our desires, our, our search for significance, for identity, for satisfaction, for happiness, for recognition, without having to depend on God, that's adultery, James says. But God's heart is that those captured by the love of the world would come to their senses and come to him. Look in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, of course, it, it is always God's initiative to seek and save and, and rescue us. But as God's children, when we wander away from him, when we get lost in some mess that we've created, we need to come to our senses and, and come back to him. And when we do that, we find him willing and ready to welcome and embrace us. Do, do you hear the language here that echoes the, the story Jesus told about this prodigal son that runs away and tells his dad, you know, I wish you'd hurry up and die so I could have my money and get on with life. And ends up in a pigsty, but he comes to his senses. And, and when he comes home, the father runs, runs to embrace him. That's what James is picturing here. 
That's what the father is like. But just like the prodigal has to leave the pigsty and come home to be reconciled to the father, so we have to not only turn away from sin, we have to turn to the father. That's what it looks like. See, in in verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Repentance always involves both head and heart. It always involves both attitude and actions. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your, your joy to gloom. Now, James is not saying there's no foundation for joy in the Christian life. Be wretched, be mournful, weep. There, there are signs of lament. This, this is acute, deep sorrow. Just a, a profound brokenness over our sin. There, there's a seriousness about our sin that, that should mark the life of the Christian because we've grieved the Lord. We've cheated on Him. We've abandoned Him. But godly sorrow is ultimately the pathway to joy and life. When is the last time you were brokenhearted over your sin? Like just ugly crying, torn up inside because of what you've done. You fight most for what you love most. And if I need to fight for sanity in the gospel that brings me to repentance, that means I'm probably going to have to fight to drown out some of the noise and all the distraction of this world because this world will never, ever, ever encourage you to grieve over your sin. Never. It encourages you to do the exact opposite. If I'm going to fight for life in Christ, I have to fight for repentance. And then I submit. James goes on in verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to the Lord. I have to identify those desires that have grown large in my heart so that I can submit them to God. Here is God's grace to humble hearts. See, when I yield to him, when I submit to him, I recognize his his just and his rightful rule in my life. Because if conflicts are a result of sinful desires that have become demands that I'm pursuing, then the solution, the healing for that, is to identify those desires and give them over to the Lord, to submit them to him and to his will and his direction. In, In fact, I'll even ask me, I'll ask him not to give me things that I might want if they would be bad for me. And and it's easy to understand but hard to do because as soon as we start to identify specific areas of my life that I need to change and say, boy, that is right, that's a mess, that thought so quickly can turn to, but is it really? I I mean, I'm not as bad as those people. I, I mean, it hasn't destroyed me yet. Maybe I'll deal with it later, just just not now. 
You fight most for what you love most. Fight your own self-reliance. Fight your hold on the desires and fight to submit them to God. And then resist, third. Seven, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is a real person and, and he is a powerful force in this world. And that does not mean blame the devil for everything that's going wrong in your life or every mistake that you've made. James is saying acknowledge that he's a reality, acknowledge his influence so that you won't listen and be taken in. You know, there's a lot of questions we have about the devil that the Bible doesn't answer. That James tells us what we need to know. Be aware of him and resist him and he will flee from you. Because more than anything, Satan wants to pull us away from a devotion to God. Because submitting ourselves to God is the greatest resistance that we give to our spiritual enemy. Don't trivialize the devil, but don't fear him either. Resist him, James says, and, and he'll flee from you. He's like a picture of a schoolyard bully, right? That, that's all bluster. As soon as you stand up to him, he, he runs crying home to mama or, or whatever it is. You, you don't need to live in fear of the devil. You, you may have failed a, a thousand times, 10,000 times, but, but you're not destined to fail. Identify his lies and respond to them with the truth of what God says about, about you and that, that God has for you. Because in God's power, you can resist. That's the last step. I, I rest in verse 6. God gives more grace. He gives us grace to resist and then be able to rest in his power. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Praise God. You see, he does not leave us in gloom or fear or failure. He humbles us to lift us up. That, that's the pathway to real joy and real satisfaction. It's the contrite, humble heart that God values. It's the person who's poor in spirit who sees the kingdom of God. Humble, broken repentance leads to real joy. See, there should be no people both more sad and more joyful than Christians that we could experience when we see the, the ugliness of our sin. Just profound sorrow. And then knowing that Jesus loves us and has paid for us, that that, that resounds, resounds in just unbelievable expressions of joy and gratitude and worship. God lifts up the humble. Because when we remember that we're not God, we're not the judge, we're not the lawgiver, we're able to appreciate that we are ruled and saved and cared for by the one who is God. And we rest in that. God is enough. His grace is enough. His good is enough. I'm secure in who he says I am. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to protect myself. Others' treatment of me is not the foundation of my life. Getting my desires fulfilled is not the foundation of my life. God's grace, God's goodness, God's blessing are the foundation of my life. And he promises that he'll use even those frustrating situations for ultimate good and for his purposes. And, and then when I don't see the prosperity or the fulfillment or the success that I would like to see in this life, 
I rest in his love that holds me, his grace that sustains me, and his glory that I will experience eternally. So here's what we do, I think. When, when you realize that you've gotten yourself into a conflict, try working yourself backwards through this progression, through this spiral of conflict. It's usually pretty easy to identify when we've been hurting and punishing people. But then go backwards from there. What is it that I was believing about them that led me to think they deserved that punishment? What, what was I demanding that they provide that they didn't give me? And what was the desire at the root of that? Because, see, then I can take it to God and submit it to Him and trust that He is good, even if I don't get it. Ask Him to help me be satisfied in Him and to find my joy and my life and my hope in Him. See, that, that shifts how we think about the conflict because we tend to think somebody's done something wrong and instead, in the conflict, we can look at it and try and figure out where I went wrong. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To the humble who trust in him, God does not promise to give everything we want, but he promises to give us the grace that we need, the grace that sustains us, the grace that satisfies us. You know, faith is part of the evangelical free church, and one of our distinctives is that we major on the majors and we minor on the minors, that, that we can disagree without having to disband. We run into problems, though, when, when we make secondary or incidental things into foundational things. When everything is a hill to die on, you're going to create a lot of casualties. How many hills do you have to die on? What are they? If God really is in control, maybe they don't need to be hills to die on. Maybe I don't have to judge and punish people for not agreeing with me. You know, after that first big fight in our marriage, uh, I eventually forgave Amelia for not appreciating me just kidding, just no, that's, that, that was a joke. I eventually came to my senses, and, and I was able to see how stupid and sinful and selfish I was. That was definitely not our last fight, and we've been married for 30 years. We've had a lot of conflicts, but by God's grace, not only do, have we been able to get through them, we can grow through them. We're growing, I think, in slowing ourselves down and checking ourselves before it gets to the point of demanding and judging and punishing. We, we can interrupt the spiral so that we feel the demand not being met and we feel the irritation. And instead of heading down that spiral of conflict, instead I can submit and resist and rest in God's grace. There's hope, there's hope in this passage that we can respond differently, that we can resist the devil, that we can trust God because you fight most for what you love most. Fight for grace, fight for humility, fight for repentance. Fight against your real enemy, the devil, and fight to rest in God's goodness. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you for these words through your servant James. It's hard. Hard to hear, hard to even see ourselves in this. Oh, Father, be merciful and pour out your spirit to soften our hearts. Even as our flesh rises up to defend ourselves and and want to point this passage at others. Oh, God, help us. Help us to humble ourselves and hear what you're saying to us and how you want to change us. Humble us, Father, so that you would exalt us. Lead us into your joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.